What's up, church? There we go. That's what I'm talking about. Hey, we are in week two of this series called Take a Vow. And as we look at this video, we see uh, just a reminder for so many of us of the vows that we've taken. I mean, you remember the time where you were at your own wedding uh, and you were saying things like, you know, for richer or poor. And for some of you, it was for richer or richer. Or for in our case, it was for poor or poor. And uh, there are many of you that you remember... Uh, that, you know, it was until death do us part, and that you're going to be faithful to each other. You just remember all these things. And, you know, like, you remember that about your own wedding. But, I mean, honestly, don't we all love a good wedding? You know what I'm talking about? <clears throat> like, ladies, you guys love to watch the bride come in. Y'all love, you know, just to ooh and all. And, like, guys, like, we don't really care much about that. We just want the cake. You know what I'm talking about? Amen? In a buffet. That's what I'm talking about. Like, if I'm going to go... I want a buffet. I want, you know, fajitas or something like that. Uh, and then, of course, everybody, whether you're a male or female, I mean, you all love to see, you know, the ring bear and the flower girl, and you always like to see what's going to happen. But the bottom line is, is that weddings are a serious thing in our culture. But I'm not sure that they're as serious as what God intended. Matter of fact, uh, just statistics show us that 50% of all marriages in our culture come to an end. And what's interesting is, is that if you look at it outside of the church, it's 50%. If you look at it inside the church, it's 50%. And so really, as we kind of walk through uh, this Take a Vow series, I want to just begin to look at some attributes of a few characters in a story that I would like for us to begin to model our lives after. And really the goal as we move forward in this series is to really look at a depiction that showed to us early in the Bible in Genesis chapter 24. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. If, if you don't have it, it's okay. We're going to provide it for you up on the screen. But I also want to remind you real quickly about last week. If you weren't here last week, I want to just encourage you to please go online. You can go to our website, uh, go to the resources tab, look under the sermon archives, and listen to last last week, because it is literally the foundation moving forward for this entire series. Like, you won't understand and get everything from this week unless you get all of last week. But I'm going to give you a quick synopsis. Last week, we took uh, what it looked like for a Jewish wedding, and we showed you what it looked like also for us to have a relationship with God. Like, this is true of a Jewish wedding, and it's also true of our relationship to God. And so, like, in a Jewish wedding, here's what happens. A father will go, and he will select a bride for his son. And he will go, and he will pursue this family and literally make an offer. And that offer would be to come and be a part of our family. Leave everything you've ever known. Leave your family. Uh, sometimes leave your homeland and come and be with us. And so they would make this offer. And upon the acceptance of that offer, they would actually enter into what's called a betrothal period. Very similar to our engagement period, but it's a betrothal. And the betrothal simply signifies a marriage with everything except the consummation, that there's never uh, a physical relationship until the wedding feast. But for all intents and purposes, they're, they're married. And so when they get out of the betrothal in their culture, it meant that they had to have divorce. In our culture, to get out of engagement, we just send all the toasters back. You know what I'm talking about? And, and so it's different. It's a very serious deal. But here's what's interesting, too, is, it, is you see the betrothal, and it, upon acceptance of that betrothal from the bride's family, then there's a payment made. 
And that payment signifies that there's a seriousness from both sides. And then the responsibility begins to kick in. And so you see the bride's family, and they're keeping her. They've veiled her. They're keeping her pure, waiting for the day of the wedding feast. And then the groom's family, he goes and he begins to add on to his father's house. And he prepares a place and a room specifically for him and his bride. And she is every day adorning herself, getting ready for the day that the bridegroom's going to come over the hill with his buddies and going to take her home to be his wife. And so that's the final wedding feast, which in the Jewish culture lasts about seven days. Now, that's the idea of marriage, but like, let's just fast forward and let's look at it in terms of our relationship with God. God has what? Offered us a relationship with him through his son, Right? We are the bride of Christ. And so he's made this proposal to us to have salvation with him, to live in eternity forever with him. And so he's made this offer, and upon our acceptance of that offer, we enter into a betrothal period. And as we have this betrothal acceptance and we enter in that period, guess what? There's a payment made. The blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ is now applied to our life. And then two things happen. One, he goes and prepares a place for us. And for 2,000 years, he's been preparing a place for us, his bride, the church. And he says in John 14, I'm going to come back and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may what, be also. Our job as the bride of Christ is what? To stay pure and waiting for the day of the return of our Lord so that we would be with him in the final consummation and the wedding feast forever and ever and ever. What's awesome is, is Jesus, even as he was taking the Lord's Supper with his disciples, what did he say? He said, I want you to uh, take this bread and I want you to eat and I want it to be a reminder of the covenant that I've made with you, the broken body. It's a symbol of what I've given for you. He said, I want you to take this cup and I want you to drink it. And he said, it's a reminder of the blood sacrifice that I've given. He says, do all this in remembrance of me. And then he says... And just remember, this will be the last time that I drink of the cup until I drink it anew with you in what? Paradise, forever and ever. And so he's waiting right now for the bride, his church, to come and be with him forever. And so like that's the picture of marriage. And it's a very serious deal. It's not something that we should just kind of enter into lightheartedly. And matter of fact, I know that you're like, okay, I get that, I get that. But I want you to see it from a different perspective. And in Genesis chapter 24, it's not the first marriage ceremony we've ever seen because we see that with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. But here is a, a full picture of everything that we're talking about in Genesis chapter 24. And so if you got your Bibles, I hope that you're there. I want to just read this story. And uh, in this story, you're going to see four characters. Y'all ready for this? The first character is a guy named Abraham. Abraham is the father of the nation of Israel, and his name will later become from Abram to Abraham, which means literally the father of many, the father of the multitude. Then he has a son, and his name eventually becomes Isaac. And Isaac is the son of the promise. He has another son with his maid uh, Hagar out of his wife's suggestion, and that's the son of disobedience. His name is Ishmael, but eventually you have this son named Isaac. And guess what? He was a sacrifice, okay? And you see that picture. Then you also see in this story an unnamed servant. And this unnamed servant uh, in Genesis chapter 24 is someone that we don't necessarily know, but it's a, a picture of something to come. And I'll show you that in just a second. And then lastly is you see this, this girl named Rebecca. And uh, here's what I want you to understand. You've got these four characters. You've got Abraham, Isaac. You've got uh, a, this unnamed servant, which I believe is Eliza, and then 
then you also have what? The bride, which is Rebecca. And so what's cool is, is this, is that this is a picture of the Jewish wedding feast. And more than that, it's a picture of God's relationship to his people. Even in Genesis chapter 24, before you ever know of Jesus and the Messiah, before Isaiah ever tells you about the one who's going to be prophesied, who's going to take up the iniquity of our sins, get this. You see this entire picture of what we call the Trinity, the God, the Father, okay, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and even the church, the Bride of Christ. Matter of fact, this is it. Abraham is a representation in this text of the Father, of God. If you look at Isaac, he is a representation of the sacrifice, Jesus Christ. If you look at Eliza, he's a representation of the Holy Spirit. And you go, well, Eliza's an unnamed servant. Well, do you know what? The Holy Spirit is really the unnamed servant in the entire Trinity. And you may be wondering, well, how in the world are you getting Eliza? Well, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 2, it tells us that the chief servant and the eldest servant in the household of uh, Abraham is a guy named Eliezer, and he says, and if I never have a son, everything, all my inheritance would go to my chief servant, Eliezer. Well, in here, we're going to see in a few seconds that Eliezer has to be his chief servant. And here's why. Get this. Eliezer's name actually means helper and comforter. That's what it means. And get this, he's an unnamed servant. He's an exact representation of the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, Rebecca is a representation of the bride of Christ. Now, you may be going, well, that may be a little bit of a stretch. Come on, Brandon. Like, how are you getting this? Well, as we take this series over the next four weeks, we're going to take each one of these characters, and we're going to show you exactly not only how they imitate the role that they play for Abraham as he imitates the father, but Isaac, as he represents Jesus, what? Eliza, as he represents the Holy Spirit. And then look, the bride, Rebecca, how she represents the church. And we're going to take that. We're just going to build through that. And so next week, there's no secret. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 24, and we're going to be looking at the sacrifice of Isaac and what that looks like. And here's the goal. Like, here's the cool thing. If you understand the covenant relationship that you are to have with other people, not just your bride, not just your groom, not just, you know, those relationships, but all relationships to people. If you understand that, and then get this, if you and I can leave here today imitating Father God, then we'll all be better as we leave. And next week, if we come and we leave and we imitate uh, Jesus Christ, and we leave looking more like a sacrifice than we ever came in, then guess what? I think we'll all be better for it. And, like, and then the third week, if we come and we imitate and we look like the Holy Spirit and we have the attributes of this guy named Eliza, we'll all be better for it. And so that's the goal. And we're going to take this and we're just going to compound it and, and just allow God to really speak to us. And we're going to start out with this guy named Abraham. And so look what Abraham does uh, in this story. Genesis chapter 24, verses 1 through 9. It says, Abraham was now very old and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, which we believe is Eliza, the one in charge of all that he had, he said, put your hand under my thigh. Now, that's a pretty awkward thing, guys, okay? Um, I don't know when the last time you had another guy put their hand under your thigh, but it was a, a Jewish custom, and it was something that you saw very rarely in the Old Testament, but it was a symbol of an ultimate oath or a covenant. It was like, this is an agreement that both parties are going to make. And then look what he says. He says, I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I'm living. He goes, you, you can't get a bride from these people. And then he says this, 
but you will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant then asked him, well, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country that you came from? And then Abraham says, make sure that you do not take my son back there. And the Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, and the one who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. And so the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham, and he swore an oath to him concerning this matter. And so you see like what Abraham wants. Now the question is this, like why in the world is this text here? Because like you read this and you go, oh, that's an awesome historical description of this story of Abraham. And you know that he's going to get a son uh, or, or get his wife a son, or get his son a wife. There we go. And so, like you're wondering, but what does this all mean? Well, here's the cool thing. Back in Genesis chapter 12, you see a picture of what happens. Abraham is living in this land in Mesopotamia. Uh, it's one of the first lands, the first look, known civilizations that we ever know of. And God goes and he plucks this guy out named Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I want you to leave the land of the Chaldeans and Ur where you're living. And he says, I want you to follow me. And then he makes this promise to him in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. I'm going to provide it for you up on the screen uh, if you don't have time to flip there. But he says, the Lord then said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I'm going to show you. And he gives him a promise of a land. He says, I'm going to make sure that you have a land that's going to be yours. In Genesis chapter 15, 18 through 21, he actually gives him the diagram of the land. He says exactly how large the land's going to be. And he says, it's yours. And then in chapter uh, 12, verse 2, he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And you will be a what? A blessing. He says, I'm going to make your name awesome. And I'm going to do it through a great nation. So he says, I'm going to give you the promise of many descendants. And then look at verse three. He says, I'm going to bless those who bless you and I'm going to curse those who curse you. But all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So he goes, I'm going to also give you protection. And he says, I'm going to make your name a future blessing, not just to your nation, but all the nations of earth. So he says this, Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to give you protection. And then more than that, every single person on earth is going to be blessed by your seed. Now, that's a pretty incredible thing. You got that? He goes, Abraham, you're the dude that I'm going to bless. Now, how would you love to have that conversation with God? You know what I'm talking about? Like you would just have this all-hall moment. He's like, you are the dude that I'm going to bless. Now, that would be a pretty serious thing, though, wouldn't it? Because you're like, oh, my goodness. I've got so many things to get in check, right? But look what happens, too. He comes back to him. In Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, Abram is 99 years old at this point, and the Lord appears to him and says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I'll make a covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. If you got a pen, underline that word covenant. We're coming back to it in a little while. Then Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You'll be the father of many nations. Have you heard that before? Yes. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be what? Abraham. 
And right there in the, in the, the Hebrew, what God does is he actually w- adds this word, A, to the end of it, H-E-H. And literally all it means is this, a breath. And so God takes Abram and he brings breath into it and it becomes Abraham. And so now he's inspired by God. He's been breathed into by God. Get this, Sarai, her name changes as well, and it's the same H-E-H, and it's a breath, and then you see the relationship begin to flourish from there because God blesses them, and he says this, I'm going to make you what? Very fruitful in verse 6. I will make nations of you. Kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for all the generations to come and to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, what? I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Like, you can underline that whole thing. Because get this, this is in chapter 17. In chapter 24, what did, what did uh, Abraham say? He goes, you can't stay here. You got to go somewhere else and get what? A bride for my son. Why? Because there's no godly people living there. But what was the promise that God made? He made this everlasting covenant, and he said, I'm going to bless you with land. I'm going to bless you with descendants. I'm going to protect you. And I'm going to give you a seed that's going to bless the whole earth. And then he goes, Abraham, not only that, but this land that you live in will be a land that loves God. Now, could you imagine being Abraham and like just some of the pressure on that? Like, like, oh my goodness. And living in a place, not even having a son at this point, not even knowing that you're going to have a son because you're 99 years old and you're going, how in the world is this going to happen? He's already got a son named Ishmael, which he knows is not the blessing because God says, no, you shouldn't have ever done that. And then get this, finally, in 21, God gives them a son and they name him Isaac, which means laughter. And here's why, because God appeared to Sarah and said, Sarah, you're going to have a child at the age of 90. And what did she do? (laughs) That's funny. And so that's exactly what happened. They named Isaac laughter, and it was as if she was mocking God. And God even said, Sarah, what's funny? And she produces a son, and they name him Isaac, and he is the son of the promise. Now, like, quick note, get this. You may be in church, and you may be wondering, okay, what does this have to do with anything? And even more than that, how do I even know that this is all real? Let me just explain something real quick, Okay. Right now, there's a big thing happening in the news. There's this huge fight right now between Arab nations and this country called the Jewish state, the Jewish nation. Now, you can take it to to the bank. You can take it to the Word. This is just extra fact. I'm going to throw this one in for free today, okay? I'm not going to charge you anything for it. Ishmael was the son of disobedience through the maid Hagar. He becomes the father of the Arab nation. Today, if you were to talk to Arabs, they would say Abraham is their father and the promise came through what? Ishmael. The Jews would say their father is Abraham and the child of the promise is Isaac. And get this, Isaac, once he was born, was the promise. And guess what Abraham did? He went to Hagar and Ishmael and said, it's time to get out of my house because there's no longer an opportunity for us to continue this path together. They're butting heads. And guess what? Would you think that they would continue to butt heads for all of history? Yes. Are they still butting heads? Yes. Did they butt head 300 years ago? Yes. What about 1,000 years ago? Yes. What about 2,000 years ago? Yes. 
ever since this point in history has happened, they've butted heads. But here's what Abraham knew. He said, I have a son, and his name is Isaac, and he's the blessing of the promise. He's the sacrifice. He's the representation of the coming king. And he goes, I know that God's going to bless my seed through him. And that's what he wants. He wants to be blessed. Now, here's interesting. If you knew that the son of the promise was your son Isaac, let me ask you a question. Do you do what happens in Genesis chapter 22? Because in Genesis chapter 22, you see this picture of what God asked. And he says in verse 1, he wanted to test his servant Abraham, and he told him to take his son to the area of Moriah. And he said, I want you to take him, and I want you to gather him up with a couple of your servants, and you're going to go, and you're going to sacrifice your son. And so he takes Isaac, and they go on their journey, and uh, they all load up their camels or their donkeys or whatever it is. I'm just making that up. It's not in the text. So they go, and finally they get to the air of Moriah, and the Lord shows them the mountain in which they're to go to. And get this, they go. And at one point, Abraham looks back, and he says to his servants, I want you to stop here. Me and my son will go forward. And they go, and he stacks the wood onto Isaac, and Isaac carries the wood, and they get all the way to the top of the mountain. And then Abraham builds the altar to the Lord. And then Isaac goes, Dad, the sacrifice is ready. Like, we've got the wood and we've got the fire. All we need is the lamb. And he goes, that's right, son. And he binds him up. And he goes and he sticks him on the altar. And literally, as he is about to pull back the knife and he pulls it back to sacrifice his son, an angel of the Lord says, Abraham, Abraham! And then look what happens, verse 10. Or actually, verse 12. He says, don't lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now that I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son, he goes, I'm going to bless you. And so Abraham looked up there, and in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over, and he took the ram, and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time, and he said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, he says, I'm going to bless you. Now look at this. You've heard it in Genesis 12. You heard it in Genesis 17. It's the same promise that was in 15, same promise that was in 18. The same promise that you see here is what? The, the covenant that he's reminding Abraham of. And here's what it is. He says, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all the nations on earth will be blessed because you have what? Obeyed me. Now, anybody grow up in church, y'all remember the song, Father Abraham? Y'all want to sing it with me? (laughs) Father Abraham had many sons, had many sons, had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. Like, okay, and if you didn't grow up in church, I'm sorry for the awkward moment, okay? And so, like, it, it's really not that great of a song, okay? And here's why. Like, here's why I don't think it's... Because you're like, what? Many sons? He only had two of them. You had Ishmael, and he's not the son of the promise. And then you have Isaac, and he's the son of the problem. Where are the many sons? How am I one of the many sons? And here's why. Abraham knew 
that the son of the promise would eventually bless all the nations of the earth. And because of his obedience, because he kept his end of the bargain, God would bless him and that his seed would produce hope for the rest of, for the rest of history. Now, here's the question. Why do you think he didn't have a problem in taking his son up the mountain? Here's why. You ready? It's not because he believed God was going to kill him. No, no. He didn't believe that. You know what he did believe? He believed that God would provide. And here's why. He knew Isaac was the son of the promise. He knew that Isaac was the sacrificial lamb that would one day give himself up. But God would what? Provide an escape another way. And so because of his obedience, he saw this perfect picture of God's grace, and he trusted that Isaac was what? He was going to have his life spared. Why? Because he was the seed in which all earth would be blessed. He was the reason that there would be, what, stars in the sky. Uh, There would be as many as the sand on the seashore that would be blessed. He knew that the seed came from Abraham and what was passed to his son Isaac. Now, you get this? Like, you see the picture? It's a lot of scripture, but now get this. Genesis chapter 24. Let's look at it one more time just with fresh eyes so that you see this. Abraham was now very old and the Lord blessed him in every way. Why? Because he was a covenant-keeping type of guy. He kept his end of the bargain. His yes was yes and his no was no. He was faithful to what the Lord had asked him to do. And he said to his senior servant in the household, the one in charge of all that he had, he said, put your hand under my thigh. And he says, I want you, Eliza, to be a covenant-keeping type of guy as well. He says, you swear to me on an oath that you're going to do exactly as you say. And then he lays out the stipulations. You got me? And the second thing is, is he desired for what? The people around him to be blessed because of his seed. And get this. You didn't catch this, but look at the requirements that he asked of Eliza. Look at verse 3. He says, I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you will not get a wife from, uh, for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I'm living. He said, stipulation number one, you cannot get a bride from this pagan culture. All of these people around me are polytheists. They don't honor God. They don't seek the Lord called Yahweh. And so you got to go back to my land and get someone. And then Elijah said, well, what happens If she won't come, do I come back and get your son Isaac and take him? And what did he say? No. And the question is, is why? Like, why is that even significant? Why did he not want Isaac to leave? Because do you remember in Genesis chapter 12? Do you remember the specifications in Genesis chapter 15, 18 through 21? I told you about a second ago, the land parameters. Do you remember the covenant that was made in 17? Do you see the covenant that was made in 22? Is this. That's our land. And so my son's not to leave because if something happens to me, then he's here and he's being obedient. Because here's the deal. At this point in 24, Abraham's 140 years old, Isaac's 40 years old, and their mother and Abraham's wife Sarah's been dead for three years. And so she was about 127 and uh, she's gone. And then you look and you see uh, all of this taking place and guess what? Isaac has never had a bride. And so his only requirements are this. Go get a bride that's acceptable, who loves God. And number two, you bring her here and make sure that my son doesn't leave. Now, you may be here and you'll be going, okay, now what does this mean for us? Here's what it looks like for us. Y'all ready for this? If you and I are going to have healthy marriages, and hey, even for you in here that you're like, I don't, I'm not married. I'm just single and I don't want to be a part of this take a vow series. I'm just coming. It's awkward. It doesn't matter if you're single. 
It doesn't matter if you have no plans to ever date or be married. You can still emulate the characteristics of Abraham and, more importantly, Father God. And here's why. You can be a covenant keeper. That was the biggest priority for Abraham. He wanted to be a covenant keeper. Now, here's what you need to understand. A covenant is different than a contract. Like, let me explain to you what a contract is. A contract is when two mutual parties come together, and they both put in 50%. Like, you have 50% here and 50% here, and your hopes are, what? We're going to take our 50%, and they're going to combine to 100% satisfaction. But actually, here's what a contract is. A contract is actually when two people come together in mutual distrust. Yami, did you just hear that? And so, like, 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 you know your cell phone provider? Like, you have a contract with them. And they want to contract with you because they don't trust that you're going to pay the bill. Matter of fact, like, you've been paying the bill for 10 years, and then you get another phone, and they're like, hey, we need to run your credit. I'm like, what are you talking about you need to run my credit? I've been with you for 10 years. I paid faithfully every time. Well, I'm sorry, we've got to run a credit. You know, we don't know if you're going to pay that extra $15. Okay, they don't trust me. At the same time, I have a contract with them because when they don't provide the service I need, then I'm like, Sorry, I'm going to go marry someone else. You have the same thing, what, with your electric provider? You have the same thing with your internet provider? When they can't hold up to their end of the bargain, what do you do? You go, I'll go find someone else. Now, what's crazy is, is this idea of contracts runs through many, many relationships in our life. Like, we're okay with having stipulations, but the bottom line is when the other party bails, then we feel like we can bail as well. Is that true? Like, I mean, you think about even buying a house. Like, you have a mediator, then you have an inspector, and then you have another little person come in, and, like, you have all these people come in because you've got two parties of mutual distrust, and you're like, I don't know if the house they're selling me is going to be everything. Then what happens if I actually buy it and it's not what I thought it was? Vice versa, you're selling a house, and you're like, I don't know if I can trust this owner. They're probably making a proposal. And then what happens? They just back out in 10 days, and then we're all over again, and you just have this mutual distrust for everyone. And that's what a contract is. But let me explain what a covenant is. A covenant is when two parties together come together in mutual trust, 100% with each party saying that I'm going to keep my end of the bargain. I'm never leaving. I'm going to stay exactly true to what I said I would do. Like My question is this. Are you characterized by your friends and the people around you as a covenant keeper or a contract keeper? I'm talking about business deals. I'm talking about your relationships. I'm talking about everything else. Because like in our culture, it's like I'm cool to do that as long as you do this. But the moment that you do that, I'm free to go. I'm free to be out of it. But a covenant says, no, I'm never, ever free to escape. We're in it 100%, and I'll never, ever go. Now, well, here's the crazy thing is this, is you're thinking, well, I understood that. And, like, even when I took a vow or when I signed a contract or when I did this or I did that, I intended to bring 100%, but life happened. But here's the cool thing about a covenant. Y'all ready for this? I think this is one of the coolest things that I've kind of come across. A covenant does not require 100% from both parties. A covenant requires one party to stay true to their word forever. That's it. 
A covenant requires one portion of the party to say, this is what I said that I would do, and I'm going to stay true to that as long as I live. Isn't that the picture that God has done? Like, even when God made the covenant in Genesis chapter 12, and Abraham failed it when he went and he slept with his maid Hagar, did God change in his covenant promise? No. Why? Because he's a covenant-keeping God. And so, like, if you look at your marriage, like, there's many of you right now that you're here in hopes that this series will actually bring some life and vibrancy, and you even have bought into this idea that I'm going to give it five more weeks. I'm going to give it seven more weeks. I'm going to see if we can get through this marriage series, and I'm going to hang on by the thread that we have going in our marriage, hoping that maybe somehow I'll get some practical application, and she'll wake up, she'll snap out of her craziness, and we'll be fine. Or he'll snap out of his laziness, and we'll be fine. And the bottom line is, it, covenants are not contingent on whether or not your husband will wake up. Covenants are not contingent on whether or not he'll change more diapers or he'll come home from work earlier. Covenants are not contingent on whether or not she'll do what she said she would do. Covenants are contingent on you made a vow and will you keep your end of the bargain 100% even if that party, other parties, unfaithful. Even if they walk out, even if they stray, even if they lag, like, would you stay true? And here's the cool thing about a covenant. Y'all ready for this? As long as one person exemplifies and honors God with their life and their relationship and they stay true, the cool thing about a covenant is it can be restored instantly when someone else realizes that they failed on their end of the bargain, but they come back in repentance and say, I missed and I failed my end of the covenant, but because you stayed true, can we be restored? Yes, you can. And my friends, that's a covenant. Abraham was a covenant keeper. He passed that down to his servant, Elizer, and that's one of the things that he wanted to do. He remembered in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, for this reason, a father and mother, what? Send out their son, and he leaves, what? Their father and mother, and they, be, what? To be united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And here's why. is because they're going to leave everything they've ever known. They're going to leave their lives behind. They're going to become one in a covenant agreement to honor God. And that's what a covenant looks like. And that was one of the greatest desires that Abraham had. He said, I know that I've got to stay true to my word for my son to be a blessing. And then the second thing is what? Didn't he want his son to be a blessing? Parents, any of you guys want your kiddos to be a blessing? Yes, amen. Like, can I get an emphatic amen? amen. Like, I mean, there's none of us that we walked in here today and we're like, oh, I hope my kid's a loser. I mean, like, I mean, there's no one in here that aspires for your kids to destroy everything around them, right? Every one of us, we hope that the world is blessed because of the lineage of our children. That was Abraham's greatest desire, is that, that Isaac would be a blessing. And do you know why? Because he was an imitation of the Father. Do you know what God has done for us? He has blessed us through the seed of his son Jesus in a way that everyone benefits and as parents, if we're covenant-keeping parents, we're not just simply contractual, we let our yes be yes and our no be no, then we desire to pass a heritage onto our children that blesses the nations. Like, you and I all want our kids to be a blessing to other people. And that's the picture of Abraham. And Abraham even goes to the extent of this. He says, I am so emphatic about it. He goes, one, you've got to go and get a godly wife among another people, my people. Bring them back here because there's, there's not a woman here that's going to work. You got me? 
Some of you parents feel the same thing about it. Like, we're going to have to get out of Will's Point or Edgewood to go get my son somebody to marry. You know what I'm talking about? Amen? There's others, though, that you, you don't just look at it that way. But look, he also says something else. He goes, but my son's staying here because this is where we're rooted, and this is the land that God gave us. Now, what's crazy is, is you look at this principle, and you may not even understand it, but this is really the picture that Abraham's given. He goes, I desire my son to be equally yoked with someone who has the same belief system that we do. Understand? As a matter of fact, this is the, what Paul says about it um, in uh, 2 Corinthians 6. He says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. This isn't a race deal. It's not an ethnic deal. It's a faith deal. He says, for what, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. He goes, look, light and darkness don't mingle. God and idolatry don't mingle. Christians and unbelievers don't, don't mingle. Like, hey, listen, I'm just going to go ahead and give you a word of advice for your marriage. You all ready for this? If you do not believe in God, do not marry a Christian gal. She will ruin your life. <laughs> Promise. She will nag you. She will be on you. And 30 years later, you'll still be hearing the same thing. It wasn't important to her early on because, hey, you got her with your good looks and your charm. But one day she's like, I want to love God. I want to serve God. And you're like, you didn't love God and serve God then, so why do you want to love God and serve him now? And it's a problem. And the reason why is because you have no desire for the things of God, and she does. And typically that's how it works. Every now and then you'll see a man who gets inspired for the things of God. And when that happens, the whole family usually just radically changes. But the bottom line is this. Most, most people I sit down with, the greatest challenge they have revolve around this expectation. One person in the marriage says, I love God and I want to serve him faithfully. And I want my marriage to be built on that. And one other party goes, uh-uh, I don't think so. And there's a covenant binding agreement there that's broken simply because one wants to follow God and one doesn't. And it's devastating on marriages. And the cool thing is, is that Abraham knew it in Genesis chapter 24. There's no need for my son Abraham to marry a gal here that's going to lead him astray. Because if we're going to be a blessing to all the nations, then my son has to be yoked with a believer in God. Now, let me just give you this picture, okay? Parents, right now, we don't take this very seriously. And on the heels of Valentine's Day, there's going to be some of you that you're going to be upset with me. But I don't want you to be. I just I hope that you'll hear what I'm saying. Right now, at 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, we're teaching our kids marriage. And they're actually having marriage, and they're calling each other honey baby, honey boo, sugar plum. I mean, I don't know what kids call Like, if you're 13 or 14, will you please come and tell me what the names are now? You know what I'm talking about? Like, I, I knew what they were in the mid-90s. You know what I'm talking about? Baby doll, you know. But, I mean, like, they're, they're exchanging this language of marriage, and they're 13. And not only are they exchanging this idea of language in marriage, they're also exchanging the feelings of marriage. And at 17, we have kids talking marriage, when right now at 17, they shouldn't be talking marriage. 
and we're promoting this idea of marriage in our culture. And get this, by the time they're 17, many of our kids have given themselves emotionally. They've denied where they come from spiritually so that they could have an unequally yoked union. And then even more than that, they've given themselves physically. And our culture literally says right now, it doesn't matter what you have in terms of covenant relation with God. Leave, hey, get together, see if you're compatible, see if it all makes sense. And when they're 23, 24, they're waiting to marriage because they want to experiment with every single other person to make sure it's a fit. And here's the reason that it's a problem is because just as they're practicing marriage, they're also practicing divorce. At 12 and 13, we have moms and dads fighting over things like like it's a squabble, like the whole town's divided because we have a 13-year-old couple that's broken up. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, you're, they're sending texts to each other. Parents are talking about each other. Like, church are about to split because, I mean, there's just this unbelievable... Just, I mean, and you're like, they're, they're 13, But the problem is, is that at 13, they've already said, I love you for the first time. At 13, they've already given roses, a symbol of love on Valentine's. At 13, they've been talking about what would it look like if we had this dream home together. And you're like, you're 13. You're 17. And I know that like, there's a lot of us in here that we're like, that's true. Like, isn't it true? But the question is is this, is like, at what point do we understand that we've got to move from knowing this is truth and honestly kind of laughing about it to going, if we don't want this to happen and we don't want them to have this same experience at 30, then we've got to change their picture of marriage at 13. And we've got to change their picture of marriage at 17. Because like right now, what we're teaching kids is this, is the same thing that we all fear, and that's to be alone. But the cool thing is this, is that God didn't give us a relationship to be alone. Matter of fact, our soulmate is not ever found on this earth. Our soulmate is Jesus Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We have been redeemed. We have been uh, bought, and he has given us a dowry through the blood of Jesus Christ. You and I will never, ever be alone. And so if you can teach our children, and we can teach our children what that looks like, then we'll be better for it. Now, I've already come up with the solution for my family. And here's what it is. I'm going to arrange my kids' marriages, okay? <laughs> and so, like, praise Jesus, I'm already, I'm already watching y'all's kids. You know what I'm talking about? I, no, uh-uh, I saw him, man. Nope, uh-uh, I heard about him in kids' ministry. And so, like, I'm just saying, you better step up your game. You know what I'm talking about? Like, before your son ever approaches my daughter about a date, he better know his Bible. I'm just telling you. And so, I'm like, how, like, how do we work this out? Like, what? here's how it works. You become covenant keepers and you understand what it looks like. And number two, you desire for the nations to be blessed through your seed and the inheritance that you pass down. And let me explain something to you. As I married my wife, I look up and there's never going to be a real day where we just get lots of riches. I mean, I don't don't think there, unless my parents haven't told me, there's not this huge thing of stock out there that I'm going to inherit. Praise God if we do, okay? But The one thing that we both have inherited is we look at our parents' relationship and they've stayed true to the covenant. I look at Kelly's parents and they stayed true to the covenant. We look at her grandparents and they stayed true to the covenant. And and they've been married for 60 years. And you just look at this and you're just like, wow, that's really cool. 
And like you may be here and you may go, well, that's not true of my family or that's not really true of me. But here's the cool thing. It doesn't matter if you're single. It doesn't matter if you've been married and you're a divorcee. It doesn't matter if you've been married and you're even thinking about, hey, we're done. The cool thing is, is that God is a forgiving God. He's always stayed true to his end of the covenant. And so like, regardless of how many times we've broken it, regardless of how many times we've gone astray and done our own thing, the cool thing is the greatest relationship that could ever be restored in an instant is our relationship to God. And when that's restored, it allows it to flow into other relationships. And so like, get this, the key is not, have I been a covenant keeper? Or has my children in the past been a blessing? The question is, is what do you do from this point forward? Dads, you go in and you're like, throw that vase out the window. Like, uh uh-uh, we're not giving that to that girl, you know? And like, no, that's not it. You start now painting a picture of what marriage is. Here's marriage. It is a covenant relationship. Matter of fact, I'm going to show it to you. This is what marriage is. A marriage covenant is this. It's for the people or for the purpose of two people joining together in a special union of mutual trust while glorifying God and passing on a godly inheritance to the next generation. Church, it doesn't start on their wedding day. It starts long before. And here's the one thing I know to be true of my own life and many of yours. When you fully give yourself to someone else and it's not your bride or it's not your groom, there's a piece of you that always stays there. And I've been married to my wife for 13 years. And relationships and the way that I handled things before I came to know my wife still scar us to this day. And we still talk about them. And we still ponder on those. And we still thank God for his grace. But we know that we all suffer for that. And we're just so thankful that God's a God of restoration and reconciliation. But listen, the only reason I even preach this message, the only reason I even share this is this, is that parents, you and I both know that our lives have been painful, but God has been good. Let's protect our children and our children's children from the pain that we experienced. They may not listen, but it's not our job to make them listen. It's our job to pass on a godly inheritance. You cannot pass on a godly inheritance unless you're a covenant keeper and you actually believe in the message that you're passing on. Amen? Let me pray for you, church. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you that you have blessed us through the seed of Abraham. And Lord, just as you said he would have a land and a people, and Lord, that all the earth would be blessed through him, Lord, you never failed on your promise. Jesus, Jesus Christ is a direct descendant of Abraham. And Lord, we are so blessed because we've had a chance to enter into a relationship with Jesus. And Lord, that, that relationship changes us. It changes the way we deal with things. It changes the way that we live our lives and the way that we handle our relationships. And Lord, as we look at this story and we see the picture of Abraham, Lord, our greatest desire is to be a covenant keeper and a person that passes on our inheritance to the seed of our children. And Lord, we see that not only did Abraham do it, but Lord, you've done it. And so, Lord, we just simply want to be obedient to you. Lord, I confess to you that I don't know all the answers. I don't have all the solutions. Lord, I don't, I don't begin to know a whole lot. But, Lord, the one thing I do know is that I'm not interested in a contract of mutual distrust. But Lord, I want to come together in covenant with people. And I want it to be continually binding. And I want it to be kept, not because of both people, but because one person never wavers. And so, Lord, there are marriages in here that I pray that you would allow a wife to not waver or that you would allow a husband to not waver, but they would be faithful and that they would keep their eyes fixed upon the author and the perfecter of their faith.
the Lord Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen.